It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, what will we be doing when we get to heaven? Coming up in this episode, what is it like in heaven? Some say it's like the ultimate vacation. Others say it's about eternally worshiping God. Then, of course, there's the image of sitting on a cloud, playing a harp. Think again. The Bible does tell us about some of the work that heaven requires. Wait, did someone say work? Now, here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 20 years. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's pretty safe to assume that most every Christian looks forward to being in heaven with Jesus if they are faithful to their call of discipleship. This, While this can be an exciting and positively overwhelming prospect, it can also be a future that's filled with questions. What exactly will the faithful be doing when they get to heaven? How will they spend their time? Many say that the faithful will be continually worshiping God and His Son, and there is truth to this. However, there is more, much more. Understanding what Jesus' faithful disciples will be doing in heaven requires, first, putting all of Jesus' mission in order. If we know what He came to do and not do when He walked the earth as a man— We will then know what he has yet to accomplish and how his faithful followers will help him later. It's important to listen to all three parts of this series, as this is a deep subject that requires a bit of groundwork. Use our companion CQ Rewind show notes at ChristianQuestions.com and on the Christian Questions app, where we've taken the notes for you. I don't know where we first got the idea that heaven is sitting on a cloud somewhere strumming a harp, and I've been to funerals where the service talks about the deceased rooting for their favorite sports team and whatever big game is on and playing the best round of golf in their life. Heaven sounds like either really boring (laughs) or like the best day on earth you've ever had just over and over again for eternity. Well, none of that. Let's look at this topic through the lens of actually of four aspects of the Christian's heavenly reward. So we're going to divide this into four ways to look at things. We're going to call them lenses. The first lens is that of heavenly groundwork. And that means what God's plan dictates must be done as a foundation for heaven here and now by every Christian striving for heaven. Lenses two through four have no particular order as they overlap with one another. The second lens in in terms of looking at heaven is heavenly privilege. Some of the unmerited privileges faithful Christians will be given. We want to understand where this comes into play, heavenly privileges. The third lens is the lens of heavenly inheritance. Some of the amazing aspects of heavenly life that the faithful will own. What are they? This is part of the heavenly experience. And the fourth lens is heavenly responsibilities. Here's the work. Some of the requirements that a faithful Christian's life will lead to the work involved. So let's start with lens one, the heavenly groundwork. Remember what God's plan dictates must be done as a foundation for heaven. Rick, when we look through this first special lens, what do we see? All right, looking through the lens of heavenly groundwork. Here's what you need. A merciful and just answer to sin and death had to be presented for any opportunity for heaven to be open. This is Jesus laying the heavenly groundwork. John chapter 1, verse 29. And John the Baptist is speaking. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a bold announcement. It was an introduction to what Jesus came to do. The Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Now let's go into some detail, some profound detail on that bold announcement. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
for he has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared to these last times for the sake of you. So you have this scripture that just pours out the, 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 the power of the precious blood of this unblemished, spotless lamb, and it says it's the blood of Christ, and it says God knew this before the foundation of the world. This is the foundation, the heavenly groundwork being laid. The, 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 the lamb obviously had to be sacrificed. Jesus obviously knew what he volunteered for. We know that from Luke 9.22. Saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So this work as the Lamb of God was finished on the cross. And the opportunity to go to heaven was never available before Jesus' resurrection when the ransom for Adam was applied. So this is how we know for sure that all of those who lived in the Old Testament and those who died before Jesus, like John the Baptist, aren't in heaven. And some seem to believe that Abraham went to heaven because of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But Jesus himself tells us that's not true. In John 3.13, Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven. So we've got this groundwork that Jesus puts in place, the shedding of his blood. But Jesus had more work to do. One of the ways we know this, that he had more work to do, is that on the cross, Jesus had not yet fulfilled several other descriptions of himself. Well, what are we talking about? Let's go back to the Old Testament. Jacob, one of the sons of uh, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was renamed Israel. Remember, he had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jacob, renamed Israel, was dying, he specifically gave a blessing to each of his 12 sons. Here's the blessing that he gave to Judah, and Judah would be the tribe to which Jesus would be born centuries later. So here's the blessing to Judah, Genesis 49, 9-10. And this is from the New International Version. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return for the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. This is a huge promise. We have a lion and a ruler in this blessing who is destined to rule all nations. And this is way back in Genesis. The scepter, meaning the right to rule, the title to all power, stays in the house of Judah. But what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, as we will see, Jesus, by being the ransom, bought humanity, and he, he earns that scepter. Jesus essentially becomes that lion, that lion of the tribe of Judah. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, and verses 8 to 9. Revelation is a highly symbolic book. We aren't going to get into the details here other than to make a specific point. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So, so if we pause there for a moment, we see this drama in heaven, and John is witnessing it, and he's weeping because you have this book that can't be opened. But, but somebody says to him, no, wait, wait, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's worthy. It can, in fact, be open. Verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Before the lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see the, the, uh, the, the symbology here. We have the, uh, the line of the tribe of Judah being able to open it, and it's the Lamb. It's Jesus himself. And then verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased from God and your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So just to reiterate, no one can open this sealed book except the lion from the tribe of Judah. Right. It's very clear. And the lion of the tribe of Judah is the Lamb of God. Same individual. And that's why we say on the cross, you don't see the lion, you see the lamb here. And this is a very, very important aspect to this whole thing. Having been the lamb of sacrifice, Jesus is here shown as this powerful lion and ruler from that tribe of Judah. 
And once we see the picture of the lamb and lion, now what? Luke 9, 23 says, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take this cross daily and follow me. We, as his disciples, follow Jesus as the lamb, but what's our association with Jesus as the lion? And that's the big question, and that's where the question about, well, what happens when you go to heaven? That's where it all comes into play, because we have to realize the lion is showing rulership, it's showing authority, it's showing power and showing strength. The followers of Jesus are going to follow after that, so we need to understand this. Let's begin to uncover the relationship between the lamb and lion aspects of Jesus' life, which will lead us to uncovering the aspects of Christian lives faithfully lived later on in heaven. John, uh, Jonathan, let's go to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. It's about Jesus. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And here Jesus begins quoting from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So we're looking at this, and it's a very solemn occasion. He's reading in the synagogue. He picks this up. The, it lo- reads Isaiah, and then he just quietly closes the book, and, and he sits back down, and everybody's looking at him like, now what? Now what's going to happen? Here's the interesting thing. Jesus, in this case, only quoted a small portion of this prophecy from Isaiah. Now, why would he only quote a small portion? Because he's quoting what he, as the Lamb of God, was then accomplishing. So, Jonathan, let's read verse uh, Luke 4, verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he announces that I'm here, I'm fulfilling exactly what I read to you right there. Talk about being there and having an aha moment, like, you're doing what? This sacred prophecy of Isaiah, you are fulfilling it right here in front of us? I mean, you got to think about the power of that statement and, of course, the power of Jesus' life. Here's the thing. This prophecy in Isaiah 61 in its totality gives a grand picture of God's plan for all of humanity. And we're going to review this prophecy as we go through uh, today's uh, episode and the next two episodes. There's a lot here, as, as Jonathan said earlier. Let's move on to lens one, our heavenly groundwork. Remember, that was what God's plan dictates must be done as a foundation from heaven. So what do we see through our first lens of heavenly groundwork? Lens one, heavenly groundwork. Jesus came to us as a man to be offered up as the Lamb of God for the sins of Adam and humanity. This was just the first step in God's plan to open heaven to Jesus' disciples. As his followers, we know that we must follow him in his path of sacrifice. We need to put ourselves in place to understand that his groundwork opened doors that were impossible, unthought of, until Jesus came as this Lamb of God. It's really eye-opening to pause and consider that there's so much more to God's plan than Jesus' sacrifice. We have seen how Jesus laid the groundwork for heaven How do his disciples lay their heavenly groundwork? Well, the preparation of the disciples for their heavenly destiny has many moving parts. It's important to realize that heaven is not a broadly promised gift to anyone who speaks the name of Jesus and goes to church. It's not. As we will see, heaven is reserved for those who are called and chosen and faithful. Heaven's reward is costly, but heaven's reward is well worth it. So we've got some groundwork here. Let's pick up on that last phrase of the Isaiah 61 prophecy that Jesus quoted. Uh, So Jonathan, let's go back to Luke 4.19. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Simple statement. This was prophetically referencing the calling of discipleship to Jesus. It's a simple, straightforward, 
representation. Second uh, Corinthians six two helps to expand that thought. Or he says, "At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation." This isn't a 365-day year or 24-hour day. This acceptable time period is the age of the gospel message going out. And I looked up this word year in Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, and it means in a wider sense for some fixed, definite period of time. And this is the time period when we're told to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is what his first advent was all about. 2 Corinthians 6.2, which we just read, is not referring to salvation for the whole world. That comes later. So before we talk about what heaven will be like, we want a good understanding of what we as disciples have to do now in this life in order to get there, what the qualifications are. So remember, our first lens was heavenly groundwork. What God's plan dictates must be done as a foundation for heaven. What do we see when we look through that lens? All right, and again, we're now focusing on that heavenly groundwork lens in relation to those who are following Jesus. And just as you were both talking about 2 Corinthians 6, 2, in this acceptable time, in the, as it says in Isaiah, the favorable year of the Lord, there are many aspects to discipleship that need attention and developing. And every follower of Jesus needs these to be equipped for heaven. Let's get specific, though. What groundwork do we need to accomplish in order to be prepared for heaven? Well, put your old ways aside and embrace the spiritual guidance and value of God's word. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So it's interesting. It's basically saying, put aside who you were and start something new. And this picture of being like new babies longing for the pure milk of the word is saying, start your life over with a spiritual focus because you are growing into something that an earthly life doesn't know anything about, nor does it care anything about. So it's something very, very, very different for our spiritual lives. How else should we be preparing for heaven? Well, we need to follow the leadership of Jesus. This following is absolutely contrary to worldly wisdom. Continuing in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is different from how many organizations uh, in Christianity try to maintain power and control over people both in the pulpit and in politics. Following the sacrificial lamb of Jesus means our life as his footstep followers is sacrificial. We need to deny ourselves as opposed to seeking to run or fix this broken world. And that's such an important uh contradiction between trying to fix that which is broken when when we're being called away from that which is broken. Julie, as we look at this, what are some other pieces of groundwork that we can look at for ourselves in terms of developing this idea of going to heaven? Well, I, I think a lot of it includes accepting the responsibilities and changes to our life and the outlook that comes with discipleship. And continuing in 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10 shows that point. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we, we started these verses out in, in, in 1 Peter with longing for the pure milk of the word. And now Peter has gone all the way to your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is like enormous development. This is the groundwork for heaven that's being laid here and now. These verses in 1 Peter 2 open up major understanding into what heaven will look like. They also list several privileges and responsibilities that are given to us here and now. So these privileges and responsibilities are here, but they're also stay with us 
when we go to heaven. The question, what we'll be doing when we get to heaven, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 begins to show us some of what's coming up here. Uh, how else should, our true, should true disciples prepare for heaven? Well, live what you've been given. <laughs> Again, we're looking at, at, at 1 Peter. Do, doing that, living what you've been given, brings eternal glory to God. Not just glory to God. Living what you've been given brings eternal glory to God. 1 Peter 2, now moving to verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Jonathan, you said earlier how true disciples are about sacrificing and not taking over the world. Here, we need to make sure that the world doesn't take us over. Yeah, we need to put things in clear perspective. Let's go to our final piece of groundwork to establish ourselves in line with the heavenly hope. We need to realize that heaven is difficult, needs to be striven for, and is a worth is worth every, every, every effort that we would have to put towards it. Rick, that reminds me when James and John and their mother requested future kingdom favor from Jesus. Remember that? That's found in Matthew 20, 22 and 23. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Just qualifying to get into heaven is work. It's going to take dedication in all aspects of our life for that goal. It's not just a free pass for those who believe in Jesus, like a lot of the churches teach. Yeah, and this is a really fascinating passage because it tells us something very profound that we, I think, often overlook. Jesus entertains, and he's gracious, he entertains this question about sitting on his right hand and left hand in heaven. And Jesus is looking at them, knowing they have no idea what they're asking for, but he's gracious about it. And he says, but his answer, listen to this, his answer is, look, it's, first of all, do you know what you're asking? They're, oh yeah, oh yeah, we do. And he's thinking, no, you don't, but you'll figure it out. Don't worry, compassion. But then he says, this is not something that I can even dictate. It's up to my father. Think about how lofty this is. Jesus himself was saying, that's beyond my authority. That's beyond my ability to know. The Father knows it. We're called to heaven. That's what we're called to. Think about the depth and the power and the privilege in that. Just the way, by the way Jesus answers this. Let's move forward. Jesus is bluntly open about the challenges of being a true disciple. And you know, one of the things you have to love is how Jesus just told it like it was supposed to be told. He doesn't mince words. He tells you what's required. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So you've got this narrow gate versus the wide road to destruction. You have this small way that leads to life. And Jesus says, and there are few that find it. The big question, what we'll be doing when we get to heaven? What we've been looking at is the groundwork, the heavenly groundwork that a true disciple of Jesus has to put in place. If you don't put the groundwork in place, the answer is you're not going. I mean, it's really that simple. So we want to know what we're going to be doing in heaven, and everybody wants to know the answer. But you need to understand the work required to be in a position where God can say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to get to here. Understanding what's to come for faithful disciples is a true motivator to do and be what we need to do and be right here and right now. Let's look at Romans eight fifteen to 17. And this is from the Rotherham Version. For you have not received a spirit of servitude leading back into fear, but you've received a spirit of sonship, whereby we are exclaiming, Abba, O Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness together with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs indeed of God, but co-heirs with Christ, 
if at least we are suffering together, in order that we may also be glorified together. So you have this combination in this verse, and there's a lot of details here, but I want to focus in on suffering together now, that we may be glorified together later. Let's not confuse the two. The suffering and the difficulty and the trial, it's all now. The glory is later. If we're seeking glory now, we're running the wrong race. We're not running for a heavenly calling. We're running for something else because it's not about glory here and now. Now's not the time for glory. It's a time for sacrifice. That's the heavenly groundwork that Christians must be looking towards. So, Jonathan, let's take a look at uh, the, this, uh, through this lens, this lens of heavenly groundwork. And, and remember, this lens of heavenly groundwork is putting things in perspective. What do we have to do here and now to be faithful unto death? Fulfilling the earthly life of Jesus was no easy task, as Jesus was the sacrificial Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Fulfilling the life of a disciple of Jesus is no easy task either. Disciples are also called to be a sacrificial life because they walk in Jesus' footsteps. The other side of the equation is heavenly glory. Faithfully suffering now brings glory later. So it's important to understand this whole point of going through all of this groundwork is to say you need to understand what it takes to be prepared to be called to heaven. Because the big question of what's going to happen in heaven, well, that can't be answered until we put all of these pieces in place first. So we want to understand and and really pay attention to the foundation, because without the foundation, there is no, no, uh, no, no execution of the building, if you will. So it's really should be no surprise that faithfulness to discipleship is such a hard road. When has anything truly worthwhile ever been easy? We now have the groundwork of this life in place. So what will we be doing when we get to heaven? As we begin to peek through the doors of heavenly glory and responsibility, let's remember that no matter how hard the difficulties of this life are, they are but a moment in comparison to eternity. What we need to find is that inspiring assurance that God's plan has always had all of the details of the heavenly call clearly and precisely in hand. The details have always been in place. Remember, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. We just need to uncover it so we can appreciate it and walk that road. So let's, we already read Romans 5, 15 to 17, but let's reread Romans 5, 17. And then, Jonathan, let's add verses 18 to 19 as we begin to look through these lenses to our future heavenly privileges and responsibilities. Remember the lenses, the lens of heavenly privilege, the lens of heavenly inheritance, and the lens of heavenly responsibility. We've laid the groundwork. Now we want to look toward privilege, inheritance, and responsibility to see what we can see. Romans 8, 17 to 19. Again from the Rotherham Version. And if children, heirs also, heirs indeed of God, but co-heirs with Christ, if at least we are suffering together, in order that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that unworthy are the sufferings of the present season to be compared with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the eager outlook of creation ardently awaiteth the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, talks about glory about to be revealed. So there's definitely glory there. It's coming. We're going to unfold what that means as we go. Now, the other future aspect of this scripture is focused in on verse 19, where it talks about the waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Let's look through that second lens that's of heavenly privilege, meaning some of the unmerited privileges faithful Christians will be given. When we look through that lens, the lens of heavenly privilege, what do we see? We see true disciples of Jesus will be plainly revealed to all of God's creation. That's what the scripture says. They eagerly look for, await the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, but hold on. Does that mean that the faithful church of Christ is literally introduced to all of the resurrected humans in God's kingdom? How does that work? All the billions and billions and billions, you mean? That's a good question. (laughs) That's right. And I don't know the answer. (laughs) 
all I, I all, what <laughs> you know all the answers no what are you talking about? but see here's the thing what we know is they wait for the revealing how that unfolds i really don't know but i can't wait to find out it is a powerful powerful lesson here so you really got to look at this and say okay well how's it going to happen you know and when will it happen okay let's get down to it let's base our search for answers on the prophecy from isaiah 61 that jesus only partially quoted you know, we started out looking at that sort of on, on the side. What ends up happening is this prophecy in Isaiah 61 becomes the centerpiece for understanding what we'll be doing, what faithful Christians will be doing when they get to heaven. So let's first reread, Jonathan, right from Isaiah, what Jesus quoted. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So far, so good, because Jesus accomplished all this. He did bring the good news of the gospel message to all. He did encourage and give hope to the brokenhearted. He did proclaim redemption to all who are captive to sin and blindness. And he did proclaim a calling to follow him in the announcing of all this good news. Yes, but then in the synagogue, Jesus stops short of quoting the full verse of Isaiah 61 too. He stops with, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, rolls up the scroll he was reading from, and sits back down, declaring, this has been fulfilled. But he left out the next phrase, and here it is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, did Jesus suddenly forget how the scripture ended? Absolutely not. <laughs> not. Let me repeat that. Not. <laughs> this was all in preparation for the rest of the prophecy to be unfolded and fulfilled at a later time. I get it. So meaning this day of vengeance hadn't happened yet and wasn't a part of his first advent, so he couldn't declare that it had been fulfilled. So he's in the synagogue and he's talking to the average person. It's interesting that at the end of Jesus' ministry, he does reveal some about this to his disciples, to his inner circle, that this time of trouble, this day of vengeance of God, was yet coming. And so we'll just take a brief look at that. So it's revealed, but only to his inner circle near the end of his ministry, because that's not what the main point of his ministry was. It was the fulfilling of all those things that he had talked about, the, the, the good news and binding up the broken heart and so forth and so on. Let's look at this time of trouble, Matthew 24, 21, and 22. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So it's interesting. It says, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Notice how the elect... The true disciples of Jesus are referenced here. This is an unfolding of heavenly privilege. So here's a good place for a heavenly privilege lens, looking at some of the unmerited privileges faithful Christians will be given. When we look through that lens, what do we see? What we see is those of Jesus' true disciples who live at the end times are granted a privilege of being on hand and faithful under stress. Their faithfulness directly affects world history. So this is important. Their faithfulness is integrated into how world history unfolds. How is that possible? Can you explain that? <laughs> it, I don't know how it works. How would the, the elect, but it is for, for the sake of the, the elect, those days will be cut short. So that's the time of trouble right. here at the end of this age for somehow they are a saving piece of this? So what it's saying is that because God's plan is unfolding right on time, and because God has faithful ones at the very end of time, of, of, of this time of trouble, he will cut short the world's ability to destroy itself because those individuals are being faithful right then and there. Those who have been faithful, those who are being faithful, because they're there, God says the world is worth it and cuts the self-destruction short. Wow, that is a lot of pressure on us to be faithful because that's a big deal. Let's get back to our prophecy in Isaiah 61, continuing with the rest of the parts Jesus specifically left out. Again, still verse two, to comfort all who mourn. 
So how does Jesus comfort mourners within the context of these end times that we're talking about? He does that through his disciples. And just before Jesus was raised to heaven, one of his final statements is found in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is an important piece of groundwork for us. Jesus says, now he's being, he's ascending to heaven. He's got his faithful followers watching him. And this is one of the last things he says before he goes out of their sight into the clouds. And he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We cling to this promise because we live here at the end of the age and we know Jesus is with us. So we're, we're looking at comforting those who mourn. How does he do what we said through his disciples? Well, he's with us, so he can help us do that comforting work. Well, what's the situation we're in? The world is in pain. Have you noticed? The world oh, is awful out there. It's looking for answers. It's looking for hope. It's grasping at straws. They want relief. They want hope, and they want answers. We have the answers because the scriptures tell us we must preach and thereby give Hope. Let's look at Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. We know we won't be able to convert all people now, but we can still give hope. And I tell you, the, the, the idea of giving hope is such a powerful tool, just in life in general. If you give hope to somebody who's feeling hopeless, you change their life. You change that moment, and that moment can change their direction. With Jesus being with me, if he's with me to the end of the age, what is my life showing others? See, this revealment of the sons of God begins with the clarity of the message of hope and comfort here and now. It will be completed with the revealing of the whole body of Christ, with the, however it works, the making manifest who they are to the entire resurrected, resurrected creation. Well, the question is, is this your message? Or are you preaching bad news to non-Christians, which is the opposite of the good news for all? We went over this scriptural teaching on why we preach the gospel to others, and it isn't to convert the world at this time. Listen to episode 1191, Are Christians Supposed to Convert the World? at christianquestions.com or on the Christian Questions app. So we're looking at this incredible privilege of being present at the end of the age, and, and, and a, one of the roles that we play before being faithful, if, if we are, are to be faithful. There, there's so much to this. And that's why, folks, you know, the big question is, you know, what will we be doing when we get to heaven? You can't answer that question until you put all of this in place because there's so much to it. And believe me, when we get there, you're going to go, what? How is this even possible? Well, it's possible because you have the foundation to be able to see this. So let's, let's go back now to Isaiah. Isaiah continues building the end-time events as they transition into the kingdom work of Christ. Isaiah 61, verse 3. To grant those who mourn in Zion, meaning the true church, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So, you know, you've got this being called oaks of righteousness. It, it, how do you get there? It's through this garland of instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning. There's, there's all of these elements that are put into play. And so we want to take a look at these, what these elements are and what, and what they look like and what they, they, they may represent. Julie, let's get started with that. Well, a garland for ashes, some translations call it beauty for ashes, and ashes we know are associated with death and mourning. So for the true Christian, a redeemed life now is being given beauty for ashes. So once true Christians die, the ashes of their death are transformed into an eternal life later. And oil of gladness instead of mourning. Anointing happens after a period of mourning in sackcloth and ashes. Oil in scripture often represents the Holy Spirit. Jesus' disciples are given God's Spirit now in this mourning-filled world. This Spirit is the promise of a heavenly inheritance later. 
And then we have the mantle of praise instead of fainting. And some translations call it a garment of praise. We receive this covering of gladness to replace the weakness of sin and loss. So we've got these elements. Now, with these, and this, we, we want to make sure we're, we're clear on this. There is a fulfillment now, as, as the, both of you alluded to with, with these things, because your life has changed now as a Christian. It very, very, very truly is. But there is a larger picture in this. And we know the larger picture is the main focus. That larger picture is the kingdom. And we know it's the main focus because it says that they are given, the true church is given these, so they will be called oaks of righteousness. So it applies to all of the true church, and it's a, it's a transitional picture. We want to understand that this is really showing the drama of being in an earthly state versus the incredible privilege of being in a heavenly state. It shows you the differences, the, the incredible differences of ashes and glory. It just puts it in a different perspective. This portion of the prophecy alludes to a part of God's plan that is unique to the end of the age, to this day of vengeance that was just spoken of. So let's take a look at a very interesting scripture here in relation to all this. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. So this is interesting because if you take this apart a little bit, you say, I tell you a mystery. So the apostle is saying, this is something really different. We will not all sleep. The, the, the point there is that all those who died in Christ through all of the age, the last 2,000 years, were asleep. They were asleep in death. But he says, but we will all be changed. How, what does that mean? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, there comes a time where there's an instantaneous transition from that state of death for those who were sleeping and for those at the very end of the age to instantly, once they, they, they fall asleep in death, to be changed into their glorious uh, position with Jesus. And just to make sure I haven't missed it, we still haven't talked about what those are doing in heaven, right? <laughs> patience, my dear, patience. It's, this is, this okay. is difficult. There's a lot to it. And what we're talking about, though, are some of the privileges that we're being given by looking at heaven. And that's a, that's a huge introduction to the responsibilities. So we're, we're on our way. We truly are on our way. Okay, then let's move on to lens three, our heavenly inheritance. And that's some of the amazing aspects of heavenly life that the faithful will own. So when we look through this lens of heavenly inheritance, Rick, what do we see? Well, what we just talked about, true followers of Jesus inherit a completely unique resurrection. It's to a higher plane of being than all others. And at the end of the age, transitions from the sleep of death to an instantaneous birth of life. That is an inheritance that you cannot earn. That's an inheritance that's indescribable from, from the, the misery of humanity to glory in an instant. How can you even begin to wrap your head around it? So while it's not something that we do, it's something that we inherit, something that we're given. It's a gift of heaven. And what a gift it is. So Jonathan, as we begin to wrap all of this up so far, from heavenly groundwork to heavenly beings, let, let's put this all in order. By God's grace and Jesus' sacrifice, all of the deve developmental work of this present age brings unfathomable fruitage. Jesus' disciples will be privileged to be revealed to the entire world, and their very presence at the end of the age will alter history and shorten disaster. Further, they will inherit a resurrection to immortality. And folks, I'll tell you what, please, please get the show notes for this and reread just what Jonathan just said, because if you read it a few times, you're going to sit there in awe of this is something that's in store for us if we're faithful. It's like it's beyond your comprehension, and we haven't even begun to explain things yet. It is breathtaking to see how the privileges and inheritance of Jesus' disciples unfolds into such a glorious, heavenly magnitude. So far, we have seen amazing heavenly privileges and inheritance, 
But what about heavenly responsibilities? All right, you guys keep pushing it. Here we go. To this point, we've only scratched the surface regarding anything heavenly. The details that will follow in this next segment and beyond will provide opportunities to vastly deepen our appreciation for God's plan, Jesus' sacrifice, and the unearned grace and favor-filled position that true discipleship provides. And I want to say that again. Unearned grace and fill, uh, unearned and grace-filled position that true discipleship provides. We can't earn it. It is filled with grace. It is something that we should be in awe of every moment of our lives. And let's get back to those trees in Isaiah 61.3. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We've talked about the lenses of heavenly groundwork, heavenly privilege, and heavenly inheritance. So let's talk about our final lens of heavenly responsibility. Right, this lens of heavenly responsibility. Having been lifted out of sin through redemption, Jesus' disciples will be symbols of godly strength and godly righteousness. Where are these trees going to be planted? Because we've continually talked about the disciples' destiny of heaven, but this seems like it's an earthly picture. And the prophecy will continue with a strictly earthly fulfillment. Okay, so we've got the, the, the earthly picture and earthly fulfillment, but you're in heaven. Wait, so how does that, how does that all work? This is a work of reconciliation. This is a work of the faithful followers who have a heavenly home, but they're working below the clouds. They live above the clouds, but they're working below the clouds. This is an important aspect of how all of these pieces fit together. So we want to establish first this heavenly home. Let's look at uh, Jesus uh, and his disciples. They are clearly given a promise of a home in heaven. Jonathan, let's go to John 14, verses 1 to 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So you have a very obvious, very clear, very direct focus that you have a home in heaven. That's what it's saying. Jesus is making the promise. And if Jesus makes a promise, it is as good as true. So those who follow Jesus, those who are faithful, they will be spiritual beings. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it tells us not only will they be spiritual beings, but they will have divine nature. So let's look at the spiritual being part of this. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 40, and verses 42 to 43. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in a perishable body, it is raised in imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Earlier we read Romans five seventeen to 19 that said the co-heirs of Christ suffer together in order that we may be glorified together. Rick, you promised we would unfold that as we go. Is this the same glory? This is the same glory. And it show again, it's comparing weakness and power, perishable with imperishable, dishonor and, 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 and glory. It's just showing you the dramatic, vast differences. You can't get more different than the earthly life that we live versus the heavenly life that true Christians, faithful Christians are promised. They're po promised positions of power. And here's the thing. Jesus himself will lead this power. Matthew 26, 64 tells us that. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus was the lamb on earth and takes on the role of the lion in heaven. So as the lion, here he is at the right hand of God himself. And, and, it's, and it's important to realize that on earth, Jesus didn't assert 
all of that power that we see that he, he asserts from heaven. Lion versus lamb. We have to understand both roles, and that helps us understand where the true church fits in. We follow the lamb in sacrifice. We will follow the lion in his righteousness, in his glory, in his leadership, and that is going to begin to unfold, as especially as we finish up this podcast and go through episode two and three in relation to this. So let's continue a little bit further. The true church are the mighty angels of Jesus and work the works of power that Jesus himself gives to them. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Well, Jesus' faithful church follows the lion and are a part of whatever he does with his royalty and power. But Rick, you said the true church are the mighty angels of Jesus. How do we know that that's his true church and not literal angels as we know them? I know the word angel means messenger. Well, and that's the first part of knowing. The word angel can be me- mean messenger. It doesn't mean the the angel that comes from heaven specifically that we always envision, you know, angels that came to visit Abraham and so forth. We, I think we know this because this phrase of the angels of Jesus appears a few different times in Scripture. Just one other very quickly uh, to, to look at. First Timothy chapter 5, if you look at verse 17, the, the Apostle Paul is teaching Timothy about the respect that elders deserve within the church arrangement. They are leaders, they need to be respected, they need to uh, make sure things stay in order, they need to be looked up to and honored. And he says in verse 21, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ and of his chosen the word is angels. Let's put messengers, his chosen messengers. Who were those messengers? Those elders, those ones that had the responsibility to lead. So I think we have the precedent in Scripture to say that messengers, the messengers of Jesus, are his followers. That's what it's showing us. Another point is humans don't turn into angels when they die. Learn why in episode 1100, do people turn into angels when they die? establishing spiritual and human natures as separate and distinct. Okay, so being revealed from heaven helps us see that heaven is their origin above the clouds, earth is their mission below the clouds. Let's go back to the trees, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And that word for tree means something very strong. And is that why, I guess, it doesn't call it the bamboo shoots of righteousness? <laughs> that's right. That's right. It, uh, it, it is not the bamboo shoots of righteousness. It's trees. You know, it says oaks in this particular translation. Other translations say trees. The point is that it's something very, very solid that can be counted on. We can see these strong, full-grown trees or oaks, however you want to interpret it, uh, representing true, full-grown and mature disciples. They're planted. They're placed by God himself to reflect his own righteousness. How are they planted? You know, spirit beings don't turn into literal trees, so this has to be metaphorical. I looked it up in uh, Brown Driver Briggs. It's a Hebrew-English lexicon, and it says the definition includes a strong man, leader, or chief. So maybe that helps. And the Bible doesn't give the details. We know these faithful ones will be examples of righteousness. Their presence will be seen and felt by the resurrected mankind. Okay, so we put all of this in place. This, this, this planting, this placing, shows us that this prophecy is fully transitioned into the kingdom work of Christ. These disciples are fixtures in this kingdom and follow Jesus who went before them. And it's interesting. What we find out about the apostles, or the disciples rather, is wherever Jesus goes, they follow. When he comes to, to bring his kingdom, they follow him to in, in, inaugurate that kingdom. Let, let's go back to uh, where, we've, where, where we've been working. Isaiah 11, 9, and 10 gives us the same future picture of the kingdom. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. This imagery gives us the sense of Jesus as the strong and unchallenged lion of the tribe of Judah. 
We've got the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse. We read earlier about the root of David. These are all just synonyms for the glorified Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it helps us to see the expansion of his role. He was the Lamb of God. And now you see all of these aspects of power. And when you ask the question, what are we going to do if we're faithful when we get to heaven? All of this has to do with the responsibilities that, that the followers of Jesus will have. Here's the thing. Jesus had already told his followers that they would inherit the earth. We know that from Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'm glad you brought that up because Christian Questions has a very active Facebook group. And when we asked our theme question about what we're going to be doing in heaven, one of our listeners felt strongly that this text, Blessed are the meek, proves that the faithful don't go to heaven since their inheritance is the earth, meaning land, the ground, our planet. And this corresponds with many of the Old Testament promises about inheriting land. And just to clarify, you inherit heaven as your home and earth as your workplace. And that really puts it in order. Heaven is your home. You can inherit something where you don't go to live, okay? And, and that's exactly what's happening. Behold, I prepare a place for you in heaven, but I have work for you to do, and it's your work in on earth. That's why you, they're called trees of righteousness, because their influence is in the reconciliation work of earth. And that, in, in our next episode, is really going to begin to come shining through. So th- this imagery of being planted like a tree, and we keep talking about this, is one of strength and security. Another scripture that uses it, Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. For he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Another analogy of a tree. (laughs) So we need to study how to be a valuable spiritual plant with strong roots and mature fruit. You know, the this prophecy in Isaiah is very, very powerful. And we're dwelling on this these trees of righteousness because this is a picture for us to understand what heavenly work begins to look like. It's just scratching the surface, but we're beginning to see what heavenly work looks like. All of the heavenly groundwork done by Jesus' followers, we did we talked about that earlier in this podcast, follows this in this age translates into everlasting, not not temporary, everlasting fruitage from their lives the later. So what we put in is what comes out and stays with those true followers later, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We need to be clear that our job, the groundwork that we do, is to develop this fruit of the Spirit because we need to be fruitful trees if we are faithful. To put that fruit in practice now helps it so that it will be crystallized in us later. Let's take a look one last time at our Lens 4, which was heavenly responsibilities, some of the requirements a faithful Christian life will lead to. When we look through that lens, what do we see? This lens of heavenly responsibilities, here's what we see. Jesus' followers will become symbols of righteousness in the earthly kingdom. While this earth will certainly not be their home, its godliness will be their responsibility as they work under the leadership of Jesus. Not their home, but the godliness that they are responsible for planting that godliness, for being an example, and again, In our next podcast, we're really going to unfold how this works in great, great detail. So, Jonathan, as we put this all together from heavenly groundwork right now to heavenly beings later, what have we we got? Spiritual development at the expense of one's own will produces extraordinary dividends for Jesus' disciples. They are privileged to be revealed to the world with Jesus, and they play a role in the ending of the time of trouble. They are given a lofty and unique resurrection and will be symbols of godly strength and righteousness for all of the world to see. 
Rick, our main question. Yes. What will we be doing when we get to heaven? How would you answer that so far when we haven't even finished the rest of the prophecy in Isaiah 61? Become a tree. Become a tree. <laughs> be okay. A tr- the, the, the symbol of becoming trees of righteousness is a very, very profound place to start. As a matter of fact, that's why Isaiah puts that first, because as we'll see next week, all of this will unfold and will build up around the idea of being that tree of righteousness. And it shows us, it will show us many different aspects of responsibility. So folks, as we wrap this up, it's about doing the work now to understand what the privilege later can and will be if we are focused on following exactly in Jesus' footsteps and the life of sacrifice. And the results, folks, the results are beyond glorious. Think about it. Listen, we do love to hear from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up next week, well, part two. What will we be doing when we get to heaven? And we're going to get into details. Don't miss it.